On the Virtual Bible Study tonight, we want to talk about some listener-submitted questions. We've got a lot of good questions from several people around the country, and we're going to try to cover several of them tonight. Really interesting questions, good topics. And it'll be an exciting discussion. You'll want to stay tuned. The Virtual Bible Study starts right after this. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And this is the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, August 31st, 2017. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you. And uh, called in at the last minute behind the board, James Mayberry is here. James, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. And uh, thanks for coming and helping us out. And uh, we're glad that you're here on the other end of the line and we're hearing from you we want some listener submitted answers to our listener submitted questions there we go on the program tonight yeah we like to do this every once in a while jacob we like to have what we call a smorgasbord lots of different unrelated topics but all really good questions and we think that uh, our reaction is we like it and i think a lot of our listeners like it we get good response it's good and uh, we'll look forward to that and if and the 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 message for you is if you have a question that you'd like answered on this format in this forum, and maybe even know the answer to it, we got a, a question added to the list tonight uh, where a listener said he had his answer, but he wanted to hear our thoughts. And uh, so send those in, questions at collegeview.com. Chris in Georgia asked for a bumper sticker last week, and uh, I think he got it this week. He says, I want to thank you for the stickers. I've attached a photo of it on my car. It will travel many, many miles through Atlanta. Um, he said, I'll place my oval sticker on my Yeti mug so I can use it as an icebreaker at work and the other places I carry the mug. Good deal. Thank you, Chris. You that. know, somebody else, I think uh, Steve and Jenna in Texas used one of those oval ones, which we're out of now, by the oh, way. Uh, but they put one on their Yeti cooler or Yeti mug, and, and I think we're using it to get conversation started. Well, cool idea. We're going to try to order uh, right away. I've got a note on my desk to get going on bumper stickers. And, and I'll try you to want do that. Maybe you, if you want one of those smaller format ones, maybe you could, if we got enough emails from those, you could get those on order too. Yeah, we'll try. Yeah, I think those are usable. Yeah, I think those are usable, so we'll try that. All right, questions at collegeview.com is where you get your bumper sticker. James is toting one on his, on one of your, or both of your cars. Both of them. Both of them, James. is dual. All right. Okay. All right, so uh, we're going to have to dive into this pretty fast and get going here. We're a little late starting tonight. We'll, we'll try to move right through these. They're good questions. The first one comes from, I think, Florida. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I, I corresponded with this person, and uh, I think uh, it was Florida. Um, in fact, this person actually also asked for a bumper sticker, and I sent it, and I and I, now I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure I sent it to Florida. Okay. It's in the mail. <laughs> no, it's, I think they've got it already. Okay. All right. Uh, the question is simply this. I attend church where I sing from time to time using music. I'm wondering why the Church of Christ does not use instruments. David played a lyre, 
Not sure if he used it while praising God, though. Anyway, if you would explain that, I would appreciate okay. it. Okay. All right. Well, David did uh, play musical instruments. And in fact, David uh, and the Psalms mention praising God on instruments of music. Lots of Psalms we could look at. Uh, how about uh, uh, Psalm 147, verse 7? Sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praise upon the harp. To our God. All right. So, so in, in answer to that specific part, David did in fact use instruments of music in right. in praising God. Yeah. Which is fine, and we acknowledge that. Uh, but the point that we have to stress, as we've stressed so often before, is that we don't live under that King David lived under. King David also made animal sacrifices uh, at the tabernacle. Uh, King David also observed restricted dietary rules uh, that pertain to the law of Moses. There were a lot of things that David did that we don't do because we don't live under the same religious law that David did. Well, furthermore, they praised God with dance. Psalm 149, verse 3, let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto him with the timbrel and harp. So they were doing lots of things differently. uh, Their worship was was just different. It was different. Yeah, their worship was just different. Now, it's interesting that we see in the New Testament a a significant break in that pattern, uh, and no reference to dance, no reference to the timbrel, the harp, or any other musical instrument. That's exactly right. In the New Testament, you can read the New Testament from from Matthew 1 to Revelation 22, and there's not any reference to New Testament Christians using instruments of music to worship God. The New Testament is silent on that. Now, it, it's interesting uh, th- that our emailer mentioned music. We believe it. We believe in music. We believe that there is music in New Testament worship. It's vocal music. It's singing, and without instrumental accompaniment. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that church historians are in effective unanimous agreement that the first Christians did not use instruments of music in their worship services. And that was rather unusual because the first Christians were Jewish converts and they came to Christianity from a background in which instruments of music were, were, were being used. And so that would have been somewhat normal for them. But when they came into the church, as they were under the guidance of the inspired apostles and prophets, they did not use instruments of music. And again, church historians are in agreement about that. And and that lines up with what we read in the New Testament, where there's no reference to Christians using instruments of music uh, in their worship. All right, so we don't have to have the history, but the history does back up what we're saying. But let's look at what the Bible says about music and worship in the New Testament time. Again, in the Old Testament, God made it clear what he wanted, and people had no uh, difficulty understanding what God wanted in worship to him. In the New Testament, he's given us instructions, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So there we are told that uh, we are to be singing. That's uh, the, It doesn't say play. It doesn't have any reference to musical instruments. So it says to sing. So when I read that passage, I understand that God has commanded me to sing. Now, does he want me to play? Well, I'd have to look at other places in the New Testament, and I simply can't find that. For instance, I could uh, look over at uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Well, there's another passage that talks to me about music and tells me what God wants, and it talks about singing. 
I can't find anything yeah. else besides singing. We got some emails uh, that will help explain this uh, maybe better than we can. Yeah. Anthony says, definitely in the Old Testament times, instruments were used. However, we're under the law of Christ, and in his New Testament, we are only authorized to sing. The only plucking mentioned is on our heartstrings. That's Ephesians 5, uh, 18 and 19, I think, yeah. that you just read. There's no authority for any other uh, anything other than singing. All right. So, again, not that we're against the music, not that we wouldn't maybe necessarily like or it. Or that our preference might be for it, but we're, we're just, just trying to do what the New Testament teaches. What does teaches. the New Testament say? And it only says to sing, and so that's where we have to stop. Yeah. All right. Travis is in, uh, oh, he's in, uh, California. Colton, California. Yeah. Thank you, Travis, for emailing us tonight. He says, uh, uh, I s- struggled with this for a long time as well, but I believe the answer is really quite simple. In the New Testament, we're instructed in a number of ways how to worship the Lord. For example, Colossians 3.16, a passage that we just read. Since we are instructed on how to worship, it follows that there's an, an in- inappropriate way to worship. Otherwise, why instruct us at all? Since we are not instructed to play instruments in the New Testament church, why should we not assume any such practices from the old law carry themselves forward? I'd also argue that 1 Corinthians 14 makes a key argument that the singing has to be understandable and not bogged down with instruments. It's hard to keep your mind fruitful while singing uh, if a song is infiltrated by a guitar solo. And he references 1 Corinthians 14, 14 through 16. For if I pray with a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is it? What is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit. I will also pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless the Spirit in the Spirit only, how will the one who filled the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you're saying? So here is Colossians uh, 14, verse 15, which says that, that again, the first Corinthians, music, first Corinthians 14, 15, which again references music, and it references singing only. Thanks, and, Travis. And then real quickly, Kent in Georgia says... There's no New Testament authority for the usage of mechanical instrumental music in worship to God. All of the passages in the New Testament regulating worship unto God is limited exclusively to that of singing. As we especially consider Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.19, we take note of the reciprocal pronouns. In understanding the significance of such, we note that such implies that an interchange of action as it is related to singing, which necessitates congregational singing. The New Testament authority regulates worship unto God authorizes only congregational singing. Such being the case, true New Testament churches do not use mechanical instruments of music, nor solos or special singing groups in the worship assemblies. Colossians 3.17, 2 John verses 9-11. through 11. So that's a quick covering of that topic. And to our listener, and I think she's uh, in the chat room, and I think she's listening. We're so glad you found us from the Virtual Bible Study. She said you just recently found us. Yeah. Um, uh, and has been listening to our podcast. We're so glad you found us. This is probably brand new news to you, and that's okay. But we think it is the right biblical answer. And if you go in our archives, you can find whole programs on the instrumental music question, and that yeah. might be helpful to listen to yeah. those. in our. And, and if you look on our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com, look for our archives and you can there's whole programs there on that, and we'd be glad to interact with you more personally and directly if you have more questions. I know this is this sounds. I'm thinking this is probably brand new information to you. Uh, please 
be open to consider what the Bible says. Now, don't, don't reject it out of hand. Yeah. Please give a careful consideration to yeah. it. Again, I'd like to add a couple things. We don't do what they did in the Old Testament in a lot of different areas, as you mentioned. Bernie of Incense is one. Yeah. God was very clear he wanted incense in the Old Testament. We don't do it in the New Testament. Why not? Well, he just didn't, he didn't give the instruction. It's different. Yeah. And same as with music. The music is different. Uh, the, what he's instructed is different than what it is in the Old Testament. We did not reference Colossians 3, verse 17. And whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through him. So we've got to have authority from God, from Christ and God on everything that we do. The only way we get that is from the word of God. And I'd also reference you to first, uh, Romans 14, verse 23, when it talks about what we do, he who doubts is condemned if he eats, but he who does not eat from faith. Whatever is uh, not from faith is sin. If you can't do it by faith, then you can't and, do and it. And faith must come by hearing, Romans ten seventeen. So it's got to be, in other words, we've yeah, got to hear God's God. truth, develop faith in it, and then practice it. And so the question for someone who wants to use music and worship is, is God pleased with that? Do you have faith? Do you know confidently that he's pleased with you worshiping him with instrumental music? And you can't do that unless you can read about it in the Bible, in the New Testament. And so we have to say we can't do that. All right. James, any comments you want to add to that quickly before we go to our break? Nope. nope okay. not All, right. All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks, James. All right. So the good question uh, there, and hopefully that list, that answer helped. Uh, or at least uh, spark some more yeah, questions. Yeah, and like I said, we'd be glad to correspond yeah. with you personally yeah. about that. Yeah. And if we do refer you to our archives for whole yeah. programs on instrumental music can be found. And it's not on a personal agenda. It's just uh, it's just what uh, we're, we're convicted by our understanding of the Scriptures. But we could be wrong, and so we would welcome a discussion from anyone that would want to talk about it further. When we get back, uh, what's our next question? All right, when we get back, we're going to talk about elders and about some of the qualifications for elders. Does he have to have a wife? Can he be single? Does his wife have to be a Christian? Lots of questions about that, and Chris has added one from Georgia tonight as well. So we'll get that on the other side of the break, and we'll hope to hear from you. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. Hi, I'm Wade Shelton. In 1 Peter 3.15, the Scripture says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, we believe here at College View that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks us. And I believe that we are dedicated to this cause. That's why we here at College View bring you the virtual Bible study each week. Our hope is that you will join us each week here on the virtual Bible study in hopes of strengthening your faith so that you will be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Please join us here every Thursday night on the Virtual Bible Study. I know that it's worth an hour of your time. Here's some quotes worth pondering. Tact is the art of making a point without making an enemy. Be careful of your thoughts. They may become words at any moment. A blind man who sees is better than a seeing man who is blind. Character is much easier kept than recovered. Man, wish I'd said that. A streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? Now back to the guys. We're back on the program tonight as we take various listener questions. And again, we appreciate these questions. And uh, we uh, want to hear from you if you have any others that you'd like to add. Uh, now on to a question about elders. Where this, this question come from? This question comes from a listener in North Carolina. North Carolina. All right. Uh, does an elder, lots of questions about elders and their marital status. Does an elder have to have a wife? Can an elder be single? Does an elder's wife have to be a Christian? 
Does an elder's wife have to worship with the same congregation as her husband? Okay. All right. First of all, does an elder? Uh, I mean, uh, these—that's that, a pretty straightforward question. Does it, does an elder have to have a wife? We can yep. look at the qualifications for elders. They're in First Timothy chapter three, and they're in Titus chapter one. Mm-hmm. And, and it's pretty simple. First Timothy chapter three. Uh, Verse 1, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, which is a synonymous term, of course, with elder, he desires a good work, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, good behavior, and so on it goes. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think we can give a very positive yes answer to the fact an elder has to have a wife. The bishop must be the husband of one wife. It's not an option. Yeah. And then... And then uh, over in tight, let's let's look at Titus's uh, account of those qualifications. Uh, he says um, in Titus one verse five, for this cause left I thee in Crete that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, and so on it yeah. goes. So yeah. I, I think that the first question: Does an elder have to have a wife? Clearly, yes. Can an elder be single? Well, obviously, no. If he has to have a wife, he can't be single. So no, they're mutually exclusive. Yeah, those would be mutually exclusive. Does an elder's wife have to be a Christian? You know, I don't know if I've ever been asked that question before. Um, and and I, my my immediate reaction is, well, obviously, surely, definitely. But I, I don't know if I could prove it from these statements. He has to have a wife, but it doesn't state the spiritual condition of his wife uh yeah you know the deacons wives have qualifications on them in first timothy 3 verse 11 likewise their wives must be reverent not slanderers temperate faithful and that's all that's, things. that's that's good for, that's for the deacons now so if uh, uh, there might be some deduction there there could be but you'd, I'd, you'd have to be careful about that yeah uh i've never even known of a case where that was a First, I've never heard the question asked, and I've never known of a case of a man, a mature Christian man, who met all of the qualifications, uh, not just family qualifications, but all of the qualifications that are stated for a, for a man to serve in the office of an elder, who, who I've, I've never even heard of a suggestion of, of someone to that fit all those qualifications, and yet his wife wasn't a Christian. It'd just be a little hard to imagine. Yep, it would uh, It would be. You know, one of those being his leadership, the one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. You know, a, a man who is ruling his house well, who's leading, leading by example, uh, you would think that... Uh, yeah, that it, it goes on to say, on. he rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Yeah. Uh, and you think if he, uh, and that speaks to his family leadership. And if he's a, an effective family leader, you just can't imagine that his wife wouldn't be also a believer. Be, yeah. You, but yeah. Uh, it, good question. We're going to leave that with that. The, the the follow-up question: That does an elder's wife have to worship with the same congregation as her husband? Well, I guess my response to that question would be: Why? Why wouldn't she? And again, is is it a leadership problem? Is she not in subjection to him? She doesn't want to be a member of the same church he's a member of. She doesn't want to be under his leadership as an elder. Then I think you, that, that surely indicates a leadership problem in the family. Could be, yeah. Again, uh, one of those uh, weird questions, but yeah. I mean, I, well, I mean, you could think of some, some scenarios. And so here's a man and his wife. She's a faithful Christian. They have a great, loving marriage relationship. 
but for six months she's got to be away caring for her elderly mother in another city and and so she's worshiping in a different yeah. place temporarily yeah. uh, I, I, I suppose you could think of a situation like that but in a case where a wife says no i will not worship where you're an elder i would think that would be a a huge red flag yeah <laughs> yeah right, right uh maybe for a different lots of different reasons yeah uh chris in georgia says, i did not have an opportunity to answer these questions today but can't wait to listen in the podcast uh, thanks for that chris uh, i would like to add a small question regarding elders and their wives that i have had questions with or discussions with others in the past if a serving elder has been married only once and his wife passes away must he step down Chris says, I have my answer, but and others in the chat room, if time allows. All right, yeah. Chris, thanks for yeah. that question. That's a good one. Uh, in, in fact, we've got a, a comment from Linda in the chat room. The same question, same question. If an elder's wife dies, does he have to step down? I'm going to give you my thinking on it. And it comes from, of course, the only place we go for these descriptions or, or qualifications of elders, 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1. I mean, that's where we've got to go. But notice in uh, 1 Timothy 3, it says, verse 2, a bishop must then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. So skip that word blameless because he's stating a list of qualifications. He says, an elder then must be the husband of one wife. That's a present tense verb. It doesn't say an elder must have been, past tense. It's a present tense verb. An elder must be the husband of one wife. Uh, and then in Titus, if, uh, if any be blameless, if any be blameless, he has to currently be blameless. If any be blameless, and then it goes on to say, the husband of one wife. So if he must currently be blameless in order to qualify as an elder, then he must currently also be the husband of one wife. Uh, and so my position on that is, yes, if a, if a serving elder, he's only been married once, maybe he's been married for 60 years, and he's been doing a great job as an elder, he's, a, he's, a, he's just the most honorable, qualified individual, the great spiritual shepherd of the flock, he's just, but his wife dies. I think that if you take those statements, literally, he's no longer the husband of one wife. He doesn't have a wife. He's not married. And I would argue that he should step down. Anthony agrees in the chat room. Want to hear other thoughts in the chat room as well? Uh, uh, You've got some thoughts on that. It's a question that many people ask, and uh, there are different views on that. What do you let's, think? Let's go to our emails real quick, Jacob. Yeah, let's do that. And I didn't cover that question because that question wasn't listed. Uh, but Anthony says, seems to me he has to be a husband, which implies having a living wife. I don't see why the elder's wife would have to be in the same congregation, but, but it may be poor judgment to have such a man appointed an elder. Yeah, there may be some real red flags about that. There may that. be other problems brewing. Uh, Travis from California says the qualifications in First Timothy chapter 3 don't leave any room for variation. Something I'd like to draw peculiar, particular attention to is verses 4 through 5. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? These qualifications may seem arbitrary, but they are clear evidence of his ability to do the work. These aren't optional. For the same reason, we can't infer that the elder's wife must be a Christian and, once more, go to the same congregation. The man is to be the head of the household, and if a prospective elder doesn't fulfill that function, how can he ex- be expected to act? And so I think Travis is agreeing with us. With if, if, if his wife is not a Christian and doesn't want to be a member of the same congregation, he's a member. There, there's some, it seems like there's a leadership problem. There could be. All right. And yeah. then Kent, 
from Georgia says, First Timothy 3, 2 and Titus 1, 6 explicitly states that the elders are to be the husbands of one wife. Such implies that unmarried men are not qualified to serve as elders. If one is unmarried, one is not the husband of one wife. It is implied that an elder's wife must be a Christian in the requirement that an elder is to rule his own house well. Such also implies that the elder's wife must be a member of the local church where one serves as one of the elders. How would that local church have knowledge of her submissive role to her husband if she were not a member wherein her husband were to serve as one of the elders? That's an interesting point. Also, how would the elder demonstrate to the local church that he was ruling his own home well were his wife not a member of that local church? So I think I think Chris, I mean, Kent is uh, right along the same lines as us on that. All right. Great questions. All right. We need to get our bottom of the hour break. And when we get back, give us a little preview of what the next. Okay. When we come back, our next question is going to deal with why do people, does everyone sin? Is it necessary that we are all going to be sinners? All right. Do we have to sin? Is there no other option? Did God make us with a... Uh, ability, no ability to not sin. What do you think about that? Let's get your thoughts. Uh, we'll get your thoughts on the other side. Don't go here. We're back right after this. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. Our bullet point this week comes from the pen of Paul Smithson. The standard of what is acceptable in religion for many is whether it satisfies the individual. Many shop for a religion that meets their personal preferences, treating the scriptures as a salad bar, picking things they like and passing over others. Many declare satisfaction with the course they have chosen in religion without ever considering the question, is God satisfied with my religion? Our purpose in daily activities and in worship should be to strive to please God. Those who truly seek to serve God will not be satisfied until they do this. We must be willing to test our practices and beliefs to see if they agree with the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. The only way to please God in all that we do is to follow His revealed will, to simply read and study the Scriptures and follow them in all we do, not adding to them or taking from them. 2 John 9, Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. Those who fail to do this lack respect for the authority of God as Lord and Master. The inspired apostle declared, quote, And whatsoever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Colossians 3, verse 17. To, quote, do all in the name of the Lord, unquote, means to respect the authority of the Lord in everything. We must have God's authority for all that we do, and that authority must be established from the Scriptures, for it is there that God has revealed His will to us. So our personal morality, conduct, religious beliefs, and things practiced in worship must be based on book, chapter, and verse. One may be satisfied with the manner in which they live and worship while God is not satisfied. And that makes life and worship worthless before God, as Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, beginning, This people draw out and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Therefore, let us search the scriptures to establish authority for all that we believe and practice, showing respect for God's authority. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hi, my name is Bob Tidwell, and I want to remind you that the Virtual Bible Study provides a great opportunity to use your computer for something good. So turn off the TV and guide the family around the computer each Thursday night for the Virtual Bible Study. We're waiting to hear from you. Call in right now and join in on the Virtual Bible Study. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program tonight. Remind you, this program is brought to you by the College of Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Our website, if you've never been there, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. Check it out and send us an email if you have a question or comment or suggestion for a future edition of the Virtual Bible Study or just to let us know 
that you're out there. Bridgeview.com is the email address to use. We're using emails that have come into that address as our basis of our program tonight. Yeah. Now, our next question comes from the Chicagoland area. Uh, Chicago. Do the scriptures reveal why everyone eventually falls into sin if they are created sinless? Would it have been possible for someone to go through life without sinning? Since we all deserve hell, I'm a, I'm a hypothesizing that God foreknew all of us would eventually sin like Adam, and that is why he created us as he has. Um, I don't... I don't know if there's an answer to that first question. Do the scriptures reveal why everyone eventually falls into sin if they're, well, I guess it does, it, we fall into sin because we make a choice to sin. Yep. Uh, and I think the scriptures do reveal to us that that's a moral choice that we make. That we, that we make a decision to do something contrary to the will of God. But I believe it's, and so I guess the answer to that question, does the Scripture reveal? The Scripture does reveal that we are free moral agents, and that's why we all eventually fall into sin, because as free moral agents, we make bad choices, and we sin. Yeah, uh, I, I think so. Uh, and why do we sin? Well, we're in this terrible cesspool of wickedness and iniquity, um, and it, it, it's... Uh, it happens to all of us. It doesn't have to happen to all of us. Well, uh, James, in James chapter 1, actually describes the process. Let no man say when he, this is James 1 verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. And so... We are tempted when we're drawn away of our own lust. In other words, our lust, our desire, our cravings for something in this carnal world that that is urging us to do this instead of do what God wants. When we when we yield to those carnal desires, then we sin. But it, but it, but it's because we desire something different from what God wants for us. So that's the first question, and uh, maybe a little bit difficult to answer in the Scriptures as to why, other than the temptation. It's a choice. The devil's successful, and temptation is real, and we have the choice. The second question, though, would it have been possible for someone to go throughout, th- through life without sinning? I'd reference 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, for here and to, even here and to where you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving in us an example that you should follow in his steps, who did no sin... Neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Yeah. Is, it, is it possible to go throughout, through life without sinning? Well, yes, Jesus did, and he left us an example of, that we should be trying to emulate. Hebrews 4.15, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Yeah, And so... I think there's a clear answer to the second part of this question. Would it have been possible for someone to go through life without saying, yes, Jesus did? Now, that's been a, that's been a statement of some controversy through the years. And I even knew one preacher who said, well, Jesus had an edge uh, on, on us uh, being both man and God because he was, because he was divine. Uh, he didn't he didn't face temptation in the same way we do, which was always an unsatisfying position to me. Uh, I, I didn't agree with that conclusion. Jesus, 
that that verse in Hebrews 4 verse 15 is really powerful and comforting. He knows what we're going through. He was in all did yep. alike as we are. Like we are tempted, he was tempted. In every way we are tempted, he was tempted. And yet he did not sin. You know, Jesus didn't use his miraculous power, his divine abilities to avoid sin. In fact, we know how he avoided sin because we have a a, a, a real plain description of him being tempted by Satan. Um, and, and we know that every time that Satan tempted him in three different ways, and every time he was tempted, what did he do? Yeah, he, he quoted scripture. He did. And, and, and so he showed a strength to resist temptation using the same tools that are available to us. Now, I'm not saying that we would accomplish that. Uh, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Yeah. Uh, but Jesus' example is the one that we should strive to emulate. He was a man and he lived without sin. Now, the last part of the question, since we all deserve hell, I'm hypothesizing that God foreknew all of us would eventually sin like Adam, and that's why he created us as he has. I don't know about the last part about that's why he created us as he has, but did he know that we'd all eventually sin like Adam? Well, there was an eternal plan in place to redeem us. First Peter 1, verse 20, indeed he was foreordained, talking about Christ, before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Yeah, Christ was planned before the foundation of the world. Now, since that was part of the plan, you'd have to think God knew that everyone would sin if that's part of the plan. Yeah, uh, in, in Ephesians chapter three, uh, verse nine, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so God, certainly there's no limit to God's knowledge or foreknowledge. And he understood we would need a redeemer. And so it was a part of his eternal plan to provide for that. Dwight says, God said, for all have sinned and fallen short. We will sin. Do we have to? Well, we shouldn't, but we unfortunately, but unfortunately we do. I think do. that's about all we can say about it. I think Dwight just says it as plainly as it can be. We, we wish it wasn't so, but it is. And therefore, God has made a plan to solve that issue. Okay. Uh, from our emailers, Kent in Georgia says, it's true that we are procreated sinless. Matthew nineteen fourteen, The reason individuals fall into sin is because God has procreated us as free moral agent of personal choice. He references Joshua 24, 14, 15, Romans 6, 17, 18. Individuals sin based upon the same reason that they do that which is righteous. In other words, sin and righteous. It's a choice. They do both by a personal choice. I have heard even some brethren state that we have to sin. That is not the case at all. We sin because having been tempted to do so, we allow ourselves to fall into that which is sinful. He references James 1, 14 through 16, which I read earlier. Did God have foreknowledge that we would sin? Yes, indeed. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20. Did God foreordain that we become guilty of sin? No. Well, while he foreknew such, he did not cause such. The foreordination in the scheme of redemption was God developing the plan to save, not the causing of humanity to sin. 
The cause is based upon our personal choice. The conditional biblical predestination of Ephesians 1 discusses God's conditional predestination of individuals as a class, all those who would choose to believe and obey the gospel, resultant in their constituting the New Testament church. Okay. Thank you. I think that's right, Kent. I think you're right on. And Anthony says, I think the why is simply that Adam sinned and in a way passed that curse on to all of his descendants. The question as to whether it would have been possible for Adam and Eve to never have descend is an interesting one. Haven't thought of that. But I would say it, that it was not possible. They were humans just as we are, and they had free will and choice. They chose to rebel. Only Christ was, was capable of living a sinless life due to his deity. I, I, I might have to talk to Anthony a little bit about that. I'd probably explain that a little bit differently based on the things we were talking about just a minute ago. But, okay. but I mean, I, I understand what Anthony's saying. And it's a really tough question. Uh, you know, if, if a person could live a sinless life, well, Jesus did. But why does Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? Uh, so it's a little bit, I, I really think it's kind of a question that's a little bit hard for our finite binds to get all the way around that right uh i I don't think we have to sin so uh, the the two parts of that don't hardly fit together in our minds i don't think we have to sin but everybody does sin so since everybody does sin some are inclined to say we have to sin Uh, those things are not necessarily uh they're not synonymous but it's a little hard to grasp how they wouldn't be. And I don't know that it's all that vital to understand that other than to understand that we all have sinned. Uh, I mean, there there are some, I guess, some theological consequences to the position you take on that. But the fact of the matter is we all have sinned. Yeah. Period. Yeah. yeah. All right, tough. I think it's a tough question. But that's uh, hopefully some of what we said there will be helpful. Yeah. Okay. All right, uh, let's, uh, let's... How much time? we got time for one more real quick one? We can get a quick one, yeah. All right. I think the next one is quick. This one uh, is from Texas. Phoebe was called a deaconess. Was this the correct translation of the Greek? If not, what is the correct translation? And then the follow-up question, can women be called ministers, such as Lydia and other women in the Bible? Can they be called ministers if they are over, for instance, the preschool classes in the church and not over men? Okay. All right, Phoebe was called a deaconess. You're going to find some translations that translate it that way. Romans 16 is the passage under consideration. In Romans 16:1, Paul says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea. The word servant there in the King James Version is from the Greek word that we get our word deacon from, diakonos. Yep. It's, it is that word. But that word literally just means servant. Right. And it's translated that way tons of places in the New Testament. It's also the word that's translated throughout the New Testament with the word minister. Minister or servant. And so Phoebe was a servant of the church. Uh, and, and so. She wasn't the only could, one. Could, no, she wasn't. <laughs> could you call her a deaconess then? Yeah. Well, you, if, if you want to translate it that way. Trans, basically transliterate, right? Just transliterate. But. Be aware that there is what is identified as the office of a deacon. And so uh, the word diakonos, deacon, that's, that's a general, very general term for one who serves. And we're all supposed to be servants, ministers, if you will. We're all to serve. 
But the, the word is used in a very special way, and Paul mentions it in First uh, Timothy 3. He says, Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. For, the, for they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Notice here that specific qualifications are stated and it is a, it is a, a specified office in the church. Like elders, there are deacons, special, specially appointed servants in the church. All are to be servants. All are to be ministers. But there, there is an office of the deacon for which you have to be qualified. For instance, you have to be a man because you have to be have a wife. You have to be a married man because you have to have a wife. So not everybody's qualified for that office of the deacon. All are to be servants, all but not all are to be all, not all are qualified to be office, in that special office. In the office. So yes, she was a deaconess. She was a servant. However, you want to translate that. Uh, can women be called ministers, such as Lydia and other women in the Bible? Yeah, because the word minister is the same word, actually the same word uh, okay. in the Greek, and we are, are certainly from the same root, and we are all to be ministers. In fact, uh, Luke 8, in Luke chapter 8 and verse 3, it mentions uh, certain women, eight, Luke 8, 2, certain women which had been healed of evil spirits, infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's servant, and Susanna, and many others which ministered unto Jesus of their substance. Yeah, there were some women who ministered to Jesus. Well, can we? Can a woman be? A, yeah, we're all we're all Christians are supposed to be ministers or servants. We're supposed to serve. That's what we do. We're called to serve. And so, yes, they can be ministers. Uh, now, what I think the last part of that question can can they be ministers if they are? over the preschool classes in the church and not over the men. Now, the, and I don't know what's... The, that question seems to imply to me that they're giving special authority. I would have some question about a woman being in a position of special authority. Certainly, women can teach children. Women can teach other women. Uh, but to be over something... I don't, I'd, I'd have to ask more questions about what kind of authority is being... In, it being vested in that position. Are they, yeah. Okay. All right, let's get a break. When we get back, we're going to go to the end of the hour uh, with two more questions. What does it mean to submit to one another in the fear of the Lord? What is Paul saying? And then a question about uh, homosexuality. We'll get those on the other end of the break. Don't go anywhere. We're back right after this. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. I'm Larry Raspberry, a member of the College View Church of Christ, with a question for you. Do you believe in parachutes? I suppose you do. You believe they exist? But that's not what I mean. There's a difference between believing something or someone exists and putting your confidence in it or him. One who has seen a parachute knows they exist, but has never put his confidence in one. Trying one on while standing on the ground isn't faith either. 
Going up in a plane intending to jump out with a parachute on is not faith in the parachute either. Opening the door at the moment of truth and gazing outside to the ground is not faith either. It is only when one jumps out the door, counts to ten, and pulls the ripcord that he has actually put his faith in the parachute. Many of you believe parachutes exist, but only a few have actually put your faith in one. Many people in the world say they believe God exists, but only a few put their faith in Him for salvation by doing this. We'd love to help you in developing a saving faith in God. If we can be of assistance, please contact us. Send an email to questions at collegeview.com or call us at 877-381-4567. And thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study. We're tracking the trends on the Virtual Bible Study. Since 1987, affiliation with specific denominations has declined for many. Groups whose numbers fell include, this is as a percentage of the U.S. population, Roman Catholic down 13 points from 36% to 23%. Methodist down 6 points from 9% to 3%. Baptist down 6 points from 13% to 7%. Lutherans down 6 points from 8% to 2%. That information is via Lifeway Christian Resources. The Word of God says in Matthew 15 verse 9, But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Colossians 3.17. Now, back to the program. Back on the program tonight. We appreciate all of the listeners who supplied the questions for the program tonight. We appreciate all the listeners who supplied some answers and some feedback and input. Uh, We're looking at two more here before the top of the hour. The first one, I think, will go rather quickly. Yeah. uh, From KC, I uh, I think West Virginia. Uh, ask about Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. What was Paul saying this uh, through inspiration? Submitting to one another. Okay, first of all, I think there's two parts to that. Submitting to one another. I, let's go back to something we talked about earlier in the hour, Jacob. I want, I want to add instrumental music. You should submit to me about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, no, because the other part of that verse, uh, I should, I, we, we are to submit to one another. First of all, we are to submit yeah, to one another. First yeah. Peter, uh, five, verse five, uh, submit yourselves unto one, uh, uh, all of you be subject one to another, be clothed with humility. And so in judgment matters, I should submit to you. It doesn't have to be my way. It can be your way. It can be somebody else's way. I don't have to have my way when it comes to judgment matters. What, we're going to get new carpet. What color should it be? Well, I think purple. You think gray. I'm, I'm going to, I am insisting on purple carpet. It'll be my way or else. Yeah. No, it doesn't have to be my way. That's not, that's not a, that's not a, a matter of righteousness. That's a judgment call. Uh, and, and I should, I should yield. But what if, what if I want to have instrumental music? Should you yield to me on that? Well, I think that's where the second part of that verse, yield, uh, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. In the fear of the Lord would prevent you from submitting to me when I'm trying to bring in something that's not authorized. That's right. But now let's say it's something else. What is it, what we're, we're going to sing the song, but the song that I want to sing 
you just can't get comfortable with it. You just think it's sort of irreverent, or you don't like the the messages in the song. You it, it bothers you. We're singing, we're doing what God said, but this is what I want. But that bothers you. In that case, I'm to submit to you, right? Well, uh, yeah, I think I think we should not do things that offend other one another's right, right, conscience. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, James, uh, any thoughts from you on on submitting to one another? Yeah, I think that also the submit also means to put under in rank. So you consider yourself lower than. And Philippians, the second chapter, you know, goes into great detail as to how we consider ourselves in comparison to other and how yep. we should be paying attention to other people's right. needs even before ourselves. So I right. think that goes along with it as well. Absolutely. As individuals, Kent says Christians are to be submissive to one another in unselfish service. Thank you for that, Kent. All right. All right. Let's get on to the last question as okay. we run out of time here. All right. The last question comes from Alabama. Uh, let me get to it here. I'll, I'll read the whole question. Uh, I keep reading pro-homosexuality arguments that the words translated, for instance, per the New King James Version, homosexuals and sodomites in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 are notoriously difficult to translate. Mm-hmm. I understand that at some point words just mean what they mean, but it would be nice to be able to present some evidence that undermines this argument. For example, the argument typically goes that men like Thayer were anti-homosexual bigots, so you can't trust them. Is it possible to show that Thayer is accurate by showing how the words have been translated throughout the centuries? Or do we have commentary from so-called church fathers expounding on those words? Well, my answer is we don't need church father commentary because the scriptures give us commentary on that sin. In verse 26 of Romans chapter 1, it's not just a translating a word, it's a whole... It's an act, it's, it's a, a descriptive. It's a descriptive. That's what I think, too. Read that, Jay, because Romans 1, 26 doesn't use the words that are in question. No, it describes it the activity. Describes it. It's, not just, it's not just an argument about translating one word. Listen to this. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature... Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. Um, that's uh, hard to get around that language there. It's not just one word that we're dealing with there. That whole uh, passage tells us the act is sinful, it's vile, it's against nature, and, uh, and God disapproves of it. All right, and that's not that's not hate language. That's just what God says about it. Yeah. Now the words that 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 our questioner asked about six, verse nine. There's two Greek words, and it is it is interesting that the second one, the first word is malakos, malakos, translated in some versions as male prostitutes. It literally means the soft or the effeminate. I think the King James translates it as effeminate. Uh, this is a reference to men and boys who allow themselves to be used in mm-hmm. those kinds of, of acts, of sinful acts. Uh, one, one lexicon, the, the, let's see, one lexicon says uh, this is reference to men and boys who allow themselves to be used in homosexuality. That's Arndt and Gingrich. Another lexicon says men who feminize themselves to attract male sex partners. Uh, that's from uh, a man named Gagnon. 
uh, Why the Disagreement Over Biblical Witness on Homosexual Practice is the book. Um, the second word is arsenokoite. Arsen is a compound word. Arsen, which means male, and koite, koite, which means bed or lying. And that's clearly a reference to that kind of sexual activity. Interestingly, it's probably a word, it's a compound word made of two, two parts. Male bed, basically. Male bed. And you can see how that would have reference to homosexual practice. But interestingly, I found that that appears nowhere in literature before Paul used the word in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, that doesn't mean that the word is it's clearly knowable. It's a word made up of two known parts. Yeah. And, and, uh, uh, and the structure of that word, man and bed, or man and lying, clearly links with Leviticus 18.22, do not lie with a man as with a woman. Okay. And so uh, I think it's interesting that uh, that is a that was a new word in the New Testament, not found in secular literature before Paul used it there in First Corinthians six. So it it may be a little more difficult to translate, uh, but uh, basically the first word means a man who acts like a woman uh, in regards to sexual acts. The second word is uh, understood as men who lie with or sleep with men. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not much There's not, not much really difficulty in translating the words, although they are, they are not words that were heavily used in, uh, in secular mm-hmm. literature. The word homosexual is a new word. That's, a, that's actually an English word that's only about 100 years old. But we understand... And, and some people say, well, it gives connotations that weren't associated with the words in the Bible. Well, but we understand what those words in the Bible mean because the act that, they, that it's used to describe is clearly condemned. And Anthony puts it this way, if these words were so difficult to translate, I think we would see, wouldn't see such consensus about, among different translations. I'm not aware of a major translation that renders these words in dramatically different ways. Good point, yeah. Anthony. Yeah, and... Uh, um, again, words have meanings. Uh, I, really, what the homosexuals are trying to convince us of is that the, the condemnations in Scripture are against promiscuous sexual activity between those of the same sex. And that's just simply not, that that can't be borne out in the, in the text. All right. Uh, it is, uh, well, look at Romans 1, verses 26 and 27 again for that commentary on yeah. what, what that act is about and what God thinks about it. All right, uh, anything else from you, James, tonight? No other comments? No comments. Thank thanks, you for the uh, Thanks for coming and bailing us out tonight. Appreciate we that. We were shorthanded well, tonight, yeah. and James showed I, up yeah, to We help pulled us. him away from some other important activities tonight, but thanks for coming, James. Appreciate uh, that. Glad to do it. And, uh, Dad, thanks uh, for the discussion. Thanks, thanks to our listeners for some good questions tonight. I enjoyed that. Yeah, we need more. We, we, we always love to get questions, and it might be a question that we can do a whole program on, or it might be one that we can add into one of these smorgasbord programs. We love these kind of programs, so ask us your questions. We'll try to get to them. Questions at collegeview.com is the way you get in touch with us. Send us an email for those bumper stickers as well if you want a small one to put on a mug. or well, We're going to have to order some more of those. Yeah, but send it in. Get get in line for those, and if we get enough, we can get some orders for that. Yeah. All right. Uh, we hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word, and hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word in the Bible, and live by it every day. 
You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.